This is the second Sunday of Advent, and we are introduced in the Gospel today to our old friend John, don't sing Jingle Bells to me, the Baptist. More on that later. But I want to say very briefly some things about the season, the themes that I mentioned last week. Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means coming. And the church in the origins and in the development of its liturgic, her liturgical year uh, has understood this to mean the celebration of the birth of Je beginning of the birth of Jesus, all that le led up to this. That first coming, and also it's a season about the second coming that will happen in the future. That in the New Testament it tells us that's going to happen in some form. So we await the second coming. I've always wondered uh, how do I appropriate that idea in my own spiritual life? How do I think about what that might mean? And so I, have, I, I think, uh, for me, the second coming or the awaiting is a continuous process and some of what we can anticipate can be embodied in our own lives today, particularly in the way we relate to other people and particularly in the way that we relate to our thoughts and feelings, our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, so that the advent, the coming, of God's saving healing power is available to us even now. Not in some dramatic future event only, but in the here and the now. And I think that uh, certainly our patron Luke in his gospel and in the book of Acts uh, is talking about that kind of um, spiritual progress that is focused on in the season of Advent in a special way. There are four major themes, in my view, of this season, not just my view, but most people's, and that, that is that we talk about these themes, repentance, which is coming today, we talk about hope, we talk about expectation, and we talk about joy. So repentance means to look at your life in a new way. I'm going to say more about that when we get to the gospel. Hope can be understood as hope, uh, honesty, openness, persistence, and enthusiasm. What might be? Expectation has to do with the full use of your imaginative powers that you can bring to bear on your own life circumstance, on your relational life, what kind of a world do you want to be? How, where do you fit in in helping create a society where it is easier to, for people to be good? How do you do that? Not in heroic terms, necessarily, but in terms of the ordinary and the commonplace in your life, what that might mean. Some people have a better imagination than others. Nancy and I were watching a PBS program about two weeks ago about Einstein. There was a guy who had a huge imagination. What might be? How might this work? Unbelievable. And so using our imagination is an important thing. And we should always be wary of any kind of 
uh, relational system or community interaction that thwarts the full use of the imagination. And we believe in this part of California and the Silicon Valley that imagination is important, and it is. And it's produced a lot of fruit, you know. So that's a good thing. There's some other things about it that I'll just put on hold for a minute. Joy is, for Christian people, the confidence that the uncertainties, conundrums, ambiguities, uh, bad things in life are going to come into surer and clearer focus, uh, be less confusing, less baffling, as we are able to understand our place in God. You know, what's necessary to do, I can say to you this, is that you must be intentional about this. When somebody who has achieved some species of spiritual centeredness talk about it, they can comment on the ways and the means to some degree, but often what you'll hear from them is to say, I don't know what has happened, but I just look at things differently than I used to, which means that the problems and the difficulties of life are still there, but somehow they become more manageable. Somehow uh, my coping ability has improved. If nothing else, that's a benefit. And we, have, we see that uh, in our life. But you've got to put something in to get something out in the course of, of spiritual development. So those things are important. Last Sunday, in Advent 1, we were talking about the necessity, and it correlates to hope and all these things, about being attentive, being alert, paying attention. And part of the way that we do what I just described about being centered has to do with focusing with being able to attend to the things, to pay attention, you know. I love this. Some people are going to disagree with me. They've made some studies on students and young people today and have discovered that multitasking does not produce what they think it does. It doesn't work always. Some people will say that's not true because I can do these things. Fine. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, when they start running studies, you know, uh, uh, figures don't lie, but liars figure. <laughs> so there's always that, right? But nonetheless, sometimes I think it's important for an old guy when you see people who are relating to one another and monkeying with their phone or doing something that is, you know, not, it's not good manners. My parents would have just gotten on me to beat the band. But then again, they didn't have these things. They didn't have them, you know. You can hear preachers rail against stuff and accumulation and the technological age that we're in and all of the difficulties. But the fact is that there's a lot of neat stuff out there. So you and I need to understand how we relate to that because that's as it says on Sports Talk Radio, it is what it is. Right? But nonetheless, we should be free to make comments and snide remarks, even if we choose to do that.
Pay attention. Focus. Take each other seriously. You know, it's important. And all of us can do good work with regard to learning how to not use that as a way of masking the need to interact with one another. That's a very important thing. This has been a godsend for people who want to isolate. Baruch. Who is Baruch? This Baruch was not the one when they said, Baruch, how is it that you have been so successful in the stock market? And Bernard Baruch said, because I have always bought low and sold high. Right? There was a New Yorker cartoon about 15 years ago of a holy man in the Himalayas sitting on a shelf, a rocky shelf in his robe with a long beard, and some guy had struggled up there and struggled up there to get to him, and the holy man said to him, Do you think if I knew what the Tao would close at at the end of 2015, I'd be sitting on this mountain? Uh, the Baruch we're talking about today is Jeremiah's secretary. Jeremiah dictated his prophetic word, or at least Baruch was the kind of guy like Boswell for Dr. Johnson, you know. We better take this stuff down. So this book is attributed to him. It appears not in our... We who have been influenced by the Continental Reformation uh, and use the Apocrypha, what we call it, have it as a separate section in our Bibles. Most Protestant Bibles don't have it in, them, in it at all. But Anglican Christians say we read the, the readings from the Apocrypha for edification, but not for doctrine. Kindly old Father Brewer reads the Apocrypha for both edification and doctrine, because I think it's important. You know why the Protestant reformers didn't like it? One of the reasons was that in 1st or 2nd Maccabees, there's mention of people taking up a collection to pray for the dead. And if you believe that praying for the dead is a superstitious practice that has had all kinds of accretions grow around it in the history of Christianity, you don't want to have something like that in the biblical text, in the inspired books of the Bible, do you? So sometimes you've got to figure out what's driving the bus when you determine what's in and what's out. So we read the Apocrypha, and Baruch today probably didn't write this because most scholars date it later than Jeremiah in the 500s. Jeremiah and Baruch went to Egypt, and they died there in the exile. So Baruch, this is attributed to Baruch. By the way, in the ancient Near East, the authors of the biblical books, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, did not believe that it was a moral lapse to attribute authorship to a book that they wanted to vest with authority. You get what I'm saying? So the, uh, the people who had this book, Baruch, and all we have are Greek copies of it. We don't have any Hebrew copies. And they said, you know what, this is attributed to Baruch, Jeremiah's secretary. And why it makes sense to do that is because Baruch, like Jeremiah, uncharacteristically becomes very hopeful about the future of Jerusalem. What might be? 
So one of the themes that, that the early Christians, the followers of Jesus, understood was that the whole of the people of the covenant, our people, were yearning for the coming of the Messiah, and they believed that now that people had begun to return from exile to Jerusalem, that there was going to be some species of restoration and more to the point, reconciliation. So what does Baruch refer to in the reading today? He sort of paraphrases Isaiah 40, which John the Baptist is going to quote in today's gospel. You know, a voice crying in the wilderness, the mountains are going to come down and the valleys are going to fill up and we're going to have an easy path our journey, both physically and emotionally, spiritually, and mentally, is going to be now flattened in a way that will make it easier to maintain the connection with God and God's purposes for us. So Baruch is speaking a hopeful message. In the time of Jesus, there were many people that Jesus would have known who in both Jerusalem and its precincts outside in the diaspora who believed that there was going to be some uh, form of completion for the exile. That the exile had not been completed and they believed, the Christians who accepted Jesus as the Messiah, that this had now come to its full completion in his person. So in his words and in his works we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God and more to the point who would bring into being the idea of the Messiah as both kingly, the halcyon days of Israel, and priestly, the once and for all sacrifice given for the salvation of the world. And so Baruch is presaging this in his in this story, in this, in this reading. Philippians, uh, the Philippian congregation was probably, if not the healthiest, one of the healthiest congregations that Paul founded. And it's important to mention here, I get the opportunity, a little inter-Episcopalian 101 interlarded into these sermons, is the fact that Christianity in its beginnings was an urban movement it didn't come from some, it didn't begin with some hicks from Nazareth and Galilee only. It came from people who believed that message and were in, Philippi was 40,000 people. That's big in the ancient world. It's a city. If you visit Philippi, you'll see it. All the Greek buildings and all of the things that were there. You know, Antioch was about 50 or 60,000 people. And these are the places where Christianity began to take hold. So Paul is writing to the Philippians, probably two or three letters have been compressed into this one, and he is writing to thank them for a number of, for two at least very important things. One of them is to thank them for, for their support of him in his ministry. In other words, they were of material benefit to him financially and materially as he continued his ministry to the Gentiles in other places. But also, the Philippians were generous in their contribution that they gave to Paul for the purpose of taking to Jerusalem. 
for the Jerusalem church. And in all of Paul's churches, he labored to receive from them some form of donation that would allow the Jerusalem church, who was on its uppers, to be supported. And so he's very grateful to the Philippian congregation. And he speaks about this, and he coaches and encourages them to continue to relate to one another in a healthy way. You know, it wasn't always so in the Pauline churches. Corinth was the church on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement. You know? I will say this, though. You know, in Christianity, lots of people don't like it, and they'll pretend in certain churches and everything that we have always been, and in the ones that we're in, harmonious, that we all get along. Christianity and getting it organized through history has been like herding cats. Some people don't like that. But if you read the biblical witness and you read what followed and you understand this, it's amazing how certain central things get passed on and we begin to see already in, in Philippians at the beginning, we didn't read it today, in uh, verse one, two, 1 and 2, he, he thanks the bishops and the deacons. So we're all be- already beginning somewhere in the 50s to get this kind of thing. Some sort of leadership and organizational power and apostolic continuity. Three things that emerged in the er- within the first century and a half. Bishops. The baptismal creed. The Apostles' Creed. And the canon of, of the New Testament, of the Bible. In that order. So we understand how it moves. Paul is thanking the Philippians for their faithfulness and for their labor to be able to uh, make the path smooth for Christian people in their faith and life. So here we have John the Baptist, who has come. Luke is uh, credited with being the great historian of the New Testament. And he believes that history has been transformed. That we are now living and continue to live in the history of salvation because of the coming of Jesus Christ. And by virtue of that, he constitutes the template that we lay over our own personal spiritual aspiration in life, but also on our community life together. And he believes that it is part of the plan of God for the church to come into being that it is part of, uh, part of this, and the mystery is that God needs you and me to continue his work in the world. And we'll continue to do When is he going to come? I don't know. But we have work to do. And John the Baptist, for Luke, sums up in his person the whole of the New Test- Old Testament prophecies. He is the culmination of the prophetic witness of the period prior to Jesus. And he comes and he announces now the necessity to repent. You know, John the Baptist is in all four Gospels, and I think, to be frank with you, he was an embarrassment to the early Christians. Principally because you couldn't not report him. Part of understanding that there's truth in what is written in the Bible 
in the eyewitness testimony is that they report stuff that they could have edited out. Maybe John the Baptist was one of Jesus' cousins. Maybe John the Baptist was connected to the Essenes out at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Those things we don't know. But we do know that John the Baptist is thinking about the necessity to turn your life around and look at it in a new way. So preparing this sermon, Mother Morrison is going to raise her eyebrows, but I was reading uh, John Calvin this week, who I, I don't normally lift up. Is, uh, here's what Calvin said about this. I think it's very good. He said, John the Baptist's call for repentance was not the pre-existing condition necessary for everything to be accomplished in Jesus. But because the eyewitnesses and people saw what had happened, it called them to repentance personally. You know, sometimes, I think sometimes we can think of God's judgment as the time in which you gaze on the beauty of God and how you feel diminished knowing that you have the capacity to be part of that beauty. That absolute beauty. And in this context, that means that for Christian people, more than once, we need to go through the process of self-examination. In the recovery movement, they refer to that as a searching and fearless moral inventory. You don't do that just once. So there are opportunities to do that and to begin to see what direction you're going to go. And that's what John the Baptist is talking about. He's talking about the importance of how we understand the nature of repentance and what it means. That means also that when we do that, there's always the possibility for restoration, reconciliation, and healing both in Hebrew and Greek, I've told you this before, the, the word that means to save also means to heal, to make whole, to make complete. And so you and I are going to participate in the saving work of Christ. So this week, think about the Advent season as a time for the proclamation to a lost, alienated, irredeemable humanity that we can be reconciled and restored and that that can be made real in our common life together and in our personal lives and relationships as well. Know also that for some reason God wishes us and needs us to cooperate with his purposes in the world and that we can celebrate every year the possibility of new beginnings. Amen.